Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. No More is a national campaign to end domestic and sexual violence. We are in the midst of No More Week, and the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Domestic Violence and Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape have a number of activities scheduled this week to bring attention to these issues. One of those activities include a town hall meeting on Twitter today, shining the spotlight on entertainer Bill Cosby, who was accused of uh, several sexual assaults amongst dozens of women over the past uh, 20 years or so. It's just one of the topics that uh, will be uh, highlighted on the Twitter town hall meeting. And uh, we're going to talk about that and other issues today with Peg Durkers, executive director of the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Domestic Violence, and Kristen Hauser, who is chief public affairs officer with the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Good morning. We uh, have our lines open today if you have a question or a comment. 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. If you have a story to tell, uh, maybe something that you've witnessed, somehow you stepped in, because that's one of the things we're going to be talking about today. Um, always enjoy having the two of you on the program because, first of all, the topic is so important. And... Uh, I think that uh, we never can make people aware enough of uh, you know what, what we're discussing today. But let's talk about no more. What is no more? This is the, the fourth year nationally, I think the third year that the two of you have been involved or the two organizations have mm-hmm. been involved. But what is the no more campaign? No more is a national campaign where sexual assault and domestic violence organizations um, along with major marketing and um, other service organizations, developed this campaign uh, to create a movement to end gender-based violence, domestic violence and sexual assault, to really create awareness in the community and to have a rallying cry uh, for people to get involved. And of course, uh, the national groups offered this campaign to the states to adopt and PCAR and PCADV did decide to partner together and do that. Uh, We have really focused on prevention and engaging men because of course engaging good men in this work, especially as bystanders to stand up against any violence that they see or any um, oppressive and derogatory uh, attitudes and behaviors is so important because that's the only way that we will end these two acts of violence. And Kristen, when you look at the No More campaign, one of the things you hear most often is ending domestic violence and sexual violence. Is that realistic? It's absolutely realistic. These are uh, behaviors that people choose to commit. They're not spontaneous. They don't come out of nowhere. These are, you know, individual decisions that people um, feel entitled or um, emboldened to, to commit violence on another person. So if you can choose to do it, you can choose to not do it. And part of that is um, helping to shape the values and the standards and the, the beliefs that any um, particular community or segment of a community hold dear to them. So when we sit by in silence um, and let things, I mean, I think most people say, oh, if I saw a criminal act happening, I would intervene or I would call the police. Well, that's nice. Please do. But um, we are more interested in stopping things before the criminal acts happen. So um, you need to look at the full continuum of behaviors that are associated 
with domestic and sexual violence and look at the attitudes and the beliefs that are held by perpetrators and oftentimes by culture at large, even though the full culture may not actually participate in perpetration of the crime. So we want people to, you know, speak out when their their friends make inappropriate jokes or um, are making light or saying victim blaming things about news stories. We want to promote respectful uh, relationships. We want to promote responsible parenting. We want to have people have um, appropriate age appropriate information about uh, healthy sexuality, what's appropriate development, all of those things so that we take away the secrecy, we take away the shame, we take away um, the permission giving to to make fun of parts of these things or act like the non-criminal things aren't important and it's only the criminal things that matter because then we don't make progress. See, I asked the question and I, I didn't want to sound cynical, but the reason I ask that is because we know that you know violence has been with mankind since the beginning of time. Um, the things you're talking about, though, and I want to kind of focus in on a few of them. You said about, uh, and, and Peggy referred to this as well, making jokes, uh, making light of things like this. How does that lead to sexual violence, uh, domestic violence? Well, it's not cause. You, you can't say, well, if you make a joke, that's going to right. cause. Right. It's not causation. You know, <laughs> it's, it's not. Yeah. But you need to look at the beliefs that offenders hold. So um, if they think that they're entitled to do do these things under certain conditions or that it's funny or it's not serious. Um, they have distorted thinking. So when the public around them behaves in ways that reinforces the distorted thinking, not taking these things seriously, giving it an excuse under certain conditions or, or what have you, that reinforces offenders' beliefs. So if we all start changing our attitudes, there's much less room um, for people to perpetrate those acts and think that it's okay to do so. Mm-hmm. And, if you, and if you think about those jokes, it's really setting uh, groups of people up as less than that person's group. And by seeing people as less than, uh, it dehumanizes people and um, reduces the, as Kristen said, perpetrator's view of the behavior, you know, the violent behavior, because it's not being done to another person. It's being done to a being less than. And you can see that, you know, throughout our culture in different ways. Yep. Uh, you know, we've seen a good example of it here in, um, I say, good example of making light of some of these things, not necessarily, I'm not saying that this led to violence, but uh, we've seen a good example here in Pennsylvania over the past year with uh, the porn gate, what mm-hmm. has been referred to with people in the attorney general's office, prosecutors and all that, yeah. that have exchanged, you know, a lot of times, at least the, the initially the focus was on pornographic uh, emails that were sent. But as more have been released, we found that a lot of them made light of even domestic violence situations. Absolutely. So when you hear a story like that, what do you think? I mean, these are people who were you know, uphold the law. They're the ones who, you know, some of them were prosecuting people who uh, were perpetrators of domestic violence or sexual violence. Uh, When I've been asked this question before, I really stress the importance of each of us asking ourselves, why is that funny? Because some folks have tried to excuse the behavior as he was just joking. Why is that funny? Why are any of those things that he actively chose to share uh, funny. 
again, all of those things treat people as less than uh, himself or the actor, the perpetrator in, in the di different uh, scenarios that he shared. It's um, it's offensive. We need to call. We need to be good bystanders and call each other out when we do things like that. Um, then we can learn. We can be sensitized to the humanity of each other and how those things are hurtful and how they negatively impact each other. A word that the two of you used a few times here today, and I know it's a big part of No More, bystanders, people who have uh, witnessed uh, domestic violence or sexual violence and many times in the past have stood by and said, well, that's you know it's something I don't want to get involved in. It's my, my neighbors, my husband and wife having some issues. I don't want to get involved. I don't want their kids to be taken away from them. What about that, Kristen? How's that? That's a big part of, of this campaign. It is, but actually the campaign is trying to get people to get engaged much earlier. Mm -hmm. So I don't think so much about, you know, um, people that are witnessing acts or overhearing acts, I mean, certainly we, we want people to take action then because somebody needs help. Um, and, and you should absolutely take action. Who do they action. call? I'll interrupt you. Who do they call if they witness something? I, the police are a great place to start to, okay. to call 911 and, and ask for assistance. Um, but we, we think more along the lines of... Um, if you're out in a, a public setting, in, in, at a bar, at a party, um, a social gathering with your friends, and you're observing one person really infringing on the personal space of another or making inappropriate comments, not leaving them alone and ignoring the signals that everybody else in the room sees that, that the person they're paying attention to does not welcome that. We want to give people the opportunity to have a few kind of tools in their back pocket that, that they can use at any given time. So um, things that we say, you could create a distraction. You could spill your drink and it shifts the attention and gives the person another opportunity to get away. You could ask a, a bouncer for intervention to say, this person over here is really bothering one of your patrons. I think that they need some assistance. Could you ask them to leave them alone? You could um, go up to that, that person who's being inappropriate and just tell them a lie. Somebody's looking for you in the other room. Get them out of there. I mean, there's, there's plenty of things that you can do to change the dynamics. You don't need to know somebody's being set up for a sexual assault or that somebody's being stalked. But if it doesn't look right and it doesn't feel right, you can shift the dynamics, change the situation, and and send a message that you are paying attention and that you know you're not really comfortable with what you were you were observing. That's important to do, and and you need people to start demonstrating that. Once one person does it, other people in the room or other people in your social circle feel emboldened to do the same kind of thing. It can feel a little risky at first, which is why we say think ahead, have have a couple things, you know, at your disposal that you feel comfortable doing or saying. Are there people who are doing that? Are there people who have, I don't want to say changed their attitudes, but now it's on their radar that uh, not just because of the No More campaign, although that could be a factor in it, but that people are thinking about this. Absolutely. We have seen, both organizations have seen a dramatic increase in the momentum of various groups of people getting involved and wanting to take a stand. Uh, we actually have a um, campaign focused on young men called Where Do You Stand? Uh, that we are currently working with some colleges in Pittsburgh to implement. Uh, and we're hoping to replicate that across the state. There's been a lot of attention, uh, especially recently, with uh, campus sexual assault. 
and Kristen can talk about that, there was a national study done. And, you know, we actually know that the environment and the atmosphere and the behavior of school administrators as well as school clubs and things make a difference in whether someone both experiences and reports violence, either in a relationship, a, a dating relationship or in terms of sexual assault. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Peg, when I saw your news release uh, talking about uh, the, the Twitter town hall meeting today, by the way, that's at one o'clock, um, and it mentioned that uh, you had 80,000 people who were in need of your services. Was that last year? Absolutely. We have seen pretty steady, steadily across the last several years, about 85,000 people, uh, victims, reach out for assistance, be it uh, through hotline for safety planning, coming in for counseling. They may need uh, legal services or housing to escape the violence. Unfortunately, we also experienced 146 people dying due to domestic violence-related homicide in 2015. See, I I asked that question, and you said you used the word steady. So those numbers are pretty consistent year after year? National studies, and, uh, you know, this has been confirmed uh, across the country in each state, one out of four women over their lifetime, one out of seven men will experience violence um, within an intimate partner relationship or due to sexual, some form of sexual violence. See, the reason I ask that question is because both of the, both areas that you're talking about, sexual uh, violence and domestic violence, that often the statistics don't tell us a whole lot because as awareness increases, we may have more numbers. The numbers may go up. doesn't necessarily mean right. it's happening more often. So when you see the numbers going up, is that a good or a bad thing? It's a good thing. It's a really good thing. <laughs> you know, sexual assault is one of the, it, it, not one of, it is the most underreported crime, period. So, and, and we know when we... Um, you know, we've got 30 years worth of, of surveys now asking people why they did or didn't report. People may say it in their own way, but it all boils down to one main reason, which is that they don't really trust other people around them to respond appropriately. So they, they don't want their name to get out. They don't want to be in the press. They don't want to be judged. They're afraid of fallout from their family. They're afraid of it cha- impacting their work relationships or family relationships. And unfortunately, we also have high-profile cases that have been making the media um, of, of great examples of people being um, harassed on, on social media, uh, driven out of town. I mean, really horrible things happening uh, to, to people who report. So um, when we see a shift in the climate and more people are willing to come forward, that's an indicator that things are moving in the right direction and people are feeling safer about coming forward to, to report what's happened. I'm going to talk more about that in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. It is no more week here in Pennsylvania and across the country, no more to sexual violence and domestic violence. Our guest today, Kristen Hauser, was Chief Public Affairs Officer with the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape, and Peg Durkers, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Domestic Violence. If you have a question, a comment, a story, something you'd like to relate, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. You also can leave a question or a comment on 
on WITF's Facebook page. That's 1-800-729-7532. And I will say this, that uh, this is one of those occasions where if you don't want your name used, we understand. And uh, I encourage you to not do that if uh, that's what uh, makes you more comfortable if you want to call in. Kristen, I just uh, we were just talking to Peg about uh, the number of services for uh, Pennsylvania Coalition Against Domestic Violence. What about uh, PCAR? Um, the number of people seen at rape crisis centers in Pennsylvania holds pretty steady right around 30,000 a year. Um, roughly a third of those are children, um, and another third of those are adult survivors of child sexual abuse. And that's pretty consistent with um, what we know about when people are victimized, that um, we know that for, for boys, um, we see most victimization happening prior to age 12. And for girls, um, the first, and unfortunately you need to say first, um, sexual victimization uh, happening prior to age 18. And then many people experience um, multiple assaults by multiple perpetrators right, throughout just, their life. You just said that. You say, unfortunately, it's say first. What do you mean? What I mean is um, many people experience multiple acts of sexual violence through their life, whether that is um, multiple family members, childhood experiences, teen va- dating experience, something in college, some, something during their adult life. Um, many people have multiple experiences of sexual assault. Now, what kind of, when you offer services, what kind of services are you talking about? Um, there's a variety across the state. So certainly... Um, Number one, if you need assistance making a report to the police, we would like somebody to accompany you to the hospital for uh, medical care, forensic evidence collection. There are advocates that uh, are on call 24 hours a day that will go out and, and assist a victim and their family doing those things accompaniment going to court, going through the legal system. Um, but more importantly, crisis counseling, group counseling. Um, some of the centers have, um, about half our centers have licensed therapists that will do ongoing actual therapy um, in those centers. Uh, services for families to help um, uh, significant others deal with, because it doesn't just impact the victim, it Im- impacts everybody who's in that, that person's life and those relationships. So, And what we know is that if we do not help people heal from the trauma that they've experienced, it leads to impacts that last over the lifetime. Absolutely. And uh, there have been plenty of public health studies that will show that people who've been traumatized and victimized will are more likely to experience um, some form or multiple forms of chronic disease as adults. Yep. Why? The physiological response, uh, of course, the stress, the depression, and the other um, effects of the trauma, if unhealed, uh, and if coping and ma- management ta- uh, strategies are not implemented, again, make, make us sick. You both have touched on this, and I think it's one of those things that uh, it's almost a rhetorical question that uh, many people could under could uh, answer the question themselves. But I just want to get a little more information for the two of you. Why don't victims report? And you ju- both said that with the numbers going up, that is a good thing. But domestic violence and sexual violence, Peg, let me start with domestic violence. Why don't they report? Kristen talked about this. There's still huge stigma where people blame the victim. Um, you brought up Judge Eakin's um, jokes, quote unquote, uh, which also blamed the victim as if someone deserves uh, 
to be violated or um, have violent acts acted against them. So uh, many people experience first responders who do, who do not believe them. And in some places, unfortunately, in our country the, uh, the, and in our state, the services uh, may be hard to get to due to um, coexisting conditions of poverty or lack of public transportation and so on. And there are other factors with domestic violence as well that uh, if it is a husband or a wife that uh, mm -hmm. is the perpetrator, that uh, I don't know, very often don't want to stay with that person because they love them, they say they love them, they don't want to see them going to jail, there are children involved, they don't want to see the, the kids lose a parent. I mean, so there are a lot of factors involved. Mm -hmm. And the first is safety. Uh, although uh, we can help a person plan safety plan, around leaving, if that's the choice, or strategies to um, stay safe within the home if they have to stay there, that that needs to happen because leaving is, is and those kind of events in the course of the relationship are very dangerous. But it's absolutely true. If you think of the three, four, or five things that are most dear to you in your life, and then eliminate at least three or four of those five. That's what we're asking domestic violence victims to do if we're asking them to leave their household and their relationship because many times uh, the person has been isolated from their friends and family, e strategies for economic abuse, they've perhaps not been allowed to work, they have no means of financial support, uh, and again, there's always the threat that harm would come to them, their children, or their family if they do decide to leave or stop, try to stop the abuse. Kristen, you mentioned earlier about uh, the victims of sexual violence being mm -hmm. ostracized, uh, being made out to be uh, somehow they did something wrong, right. feel guilty. Uh, but social media was something you mentioned. Mm -hmm. How has social media changed this dynamic? Social media, um, like all technology, can be used for good, can be used for bad. So the good news is it's, it's provided uh, many different ways for people to connect to one another and support one another. It's been a key factor in building momentum around things like the No More campaign, um, around the campus activists who have really made campus sexual assault become a national issue. They, they are using social media very effectively uh, to support one another and to garner uh, garner that momentum to, to meet their goals. The flip side is that um, it's, it can also be used to um, inflict additional damage to the victim. Um, we've seen cases where uh, photographs or videos of the assault have been shared, um, real violations of privacy. We have things like um, the revenge porn sites where offenders are posting you know, pictures um, of, of people that are naked or in the middle of sex acts that they didn't know were taken of them. So it, it can be used in ways that are very, very violating for, for victims as well. All right, let's go over to the uh, phone now. Tyler's on the line. Tyler, you're on the air. Hi. Uh, thanks for uh, taking my call. Yes, I really welcome. appreciate it. Um, so I just want to talk a little bit about my experience. Uh, I'm a student at the Pennsylvania College of Technology in Boingsport, Pennsylvania here. Uh, and I'm an RA as well, a resident assistant. And we had a lot of training uh, over the past three years, just educators coming in and teaching us about uh, the statistics on our campus and nationwide of sexual violence and other forms such as uh, such there. 
And I, I just, I'm really astounded that it all happened to begin with, but it's amazing to see the amount of progress that we have made over the past couple of years uh, and decades of that. Uh, I really think the dynamic is shifting. I really do believe that in a very short period of time, we will be at a certain point where everybody will be coming forward uh, at a constant rate. Uh, me as an RA, I have to be there for the residents. I have to be there to listen to them if they do go through this sort of thing. And it's really, it's emboldening to know that uh, there's so many people out there nowadays that are really looking forward to a brighter future in this way. Tyler, when you say that uh, you have seen progress just personally, uh, give me some examples. What kind of progress have you seen? Well, I, it's sad to say we do have a few incidents uh, at the school where there have been people who have been sexually violated. Uh, and I know that in the past decade, we've had a short shift towards more people coming forward. Uh, and then I know it's in the past four years since I've been there, um, there have been a couple of incidents that I have actually personally been a part of in helping these people come forward. And just the, the amount of response from the administration and the, the quickness of the uh, administration and our police force to come forward and finally start investigating these incidents uh, has really been quite quick. Uh, it's amazing at how fast it actually keeps forward. Thank you very much for your call. That has to be good news. It's awesome. great, great news um, because uh, Tyler really referenced the leadership. I mean, much of prevention of domestic violence and sexual assault is really about leadership. And that's why it's so important during this No More Week that our leaders, elected leaders and others, uh, today we are asking legislators to say no more and join in our uh, both our town hall and post to PA Says No More. By the way, you see I have my, my button. I my did. Button I do. And tomorrow we're asking law enforcement to say no more and show us examples uh, and send them in uh, in terms of how they contribute. Each one of us, both in our personal and professional lives, have various ways where we can make this an issue. Uh, campuses really through the leadership of uh, the president's administration and the enforcement of Title IX, campuses have really taken been the first to take a look at how they can improve the climate where these things can be prevented. And when they do happen, as Tyler explained, really um, significantly and severely um, uh, addressed, promptly addressed. And I think we're seeing that also, uh, we're really excited, our partnership around Father's Day with the Philadelphia Phillies and the Pittsburgh Pirates, again, engaging good men to stand up, who are also role models, especially to our youth, to say no more. And they will be involved again for the third year in our Father's Day activity, and so much so that minor league baseball has now uh, initiated so it's filtering, Father's, filtering Day, across. Father's Day campaign nationally. I think that's why you saw the baseball player with the Yankees, um, Araldus Chapman, recently took a voluntary sanction uh, when he was involved. Uh, yeah, he was accused of uh, domestic violence, and uh, I don't know of, of I didn't get I don't remember the exact details, but uh, there was some question mm -hmm. as to whether he would even go to jail. Uh, but there were he, no criminal he, charges right, filed. He, but he's suspended for thirty days. Thirty games. Thirty right, games. Right. Right, yeah. and he voluntarily uh, did that because Major League and Minor League Baseball have now taken a very firm stand. Um, both through policy 
again, prevention campaigns and action. Go ahead. I was say one of the things that we we need to um, work on building into this shift is to stop looking at this only as a crime. The criminal justice system cannot and will not fix this. It cannot and will not hold all offenders accountable. This is on all of us. We mm-hmm. all have a responsibility. We all have a part to play. This is not just a, about it being a crime. It's a public health issue. It's a safety issue. It's an issue of, of uh, respect and, and um, you know, cultivating responsible citizens. It's about what kind of a community do you want to live in. So we have to stop expecting the criminal justice system to say it did or it did not happen. Most of these crimes never end up in that system. It doesn't mean that they didn't happen. It's on all of us to look at those dynamics and make some of the changes that we want to see in our culture. We're going to take some more phone calls in just a moment, but... uh, um Chris, I want to follow up on, you know, both of you told me before the program that one of the uh, real signs of progress and momentum that you're seeing in the past year is on college campuses. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a long, hard process because mm-hmm. there were many colleges and universities in this country that did not want to report and didn't report uh, incidences of violence. There are 150 plus colleges and universities right now with open investigations from uh, the, the federal department. Um, uh, Justice Department. Ju- yes, right. th- thank and, you for and, a failure to, to handle it properly. And, and the reason is, is that they, if they had statistics that showed crimes, showed violence, that it wouldn't look good to uh, recruiting uh, would-be students and all that. But it seems from just from what Tyler has said, and I have to go to the University of Virginia situation, even though that turned out to be a fiasco because it was apparently a false report, it's still, I, I know you're shaking your hand, we don't know for sure, but um, what it did was shine a spotlight on violence, on sexual mm-hmm. violence, domestic violence, on college campuses, and even though that may have not ended successfully in a prosecution or we don't know exactly what happened, right. several, you know, more than several, a lot of universities and colleges looked at that and said, we have to do something. Yeah. Well, not, number one, we've got federal and state laws that say you have to do something, and if you don't, there are repercussions. Um, but we're, we're helping parents and prospective students say, when you're checking out colleges, you should look at those statistics. And if you are seeing you know, a zero, a two, um, that's a red flag that something wrong is happening, because we, we know that the rates of sexual violence on campus have been steady, hovering at around 20% of uh, for for females um, experiencing sexual violence while they are uh, students at a college. So if you're seeing a zero at any school, that does not mean it's safe. It means that there's probably uh, it's not being addressed or handled properly. We want parents and students to ask schools, what are you doing to increase reporting on this campus? What kind of prevention programming are you endorsing? How, how do you support student groups that are active on this issue? We want parents and students to demonstrate to universities this is a priority to us, and then that lessens the stigma of of transparency. Let's take a call from Pat in Campbelltown. Pat, you're on the air. Uh, Thank you for taking my call. Um, I was interested that um, earlier in the show they talked about culture. They just now talked about what kind of communities you want to live in. Um, The entertainment industry reaches into our homes daily. Um, and when are we going to start challenging the entertainment industry that 
you know, shows such shows uh, during a family comedy hour like uh, Two Broke Girls and Mom that frankly demean women when we show popular drama shows like Scandal where the main female candidate now uh, is involved in, in violent situations. We have um, video games that, um, that have violence. Mm-hmm. And so the entertainment industry... Um, really is influencing our culture in this negative way. And many may say, well, they're only giving us what we want. They're only giving us what we ask for. Well, if you look at the food industry as an example, 10 years ago, McDonald's or Burger King would have laughed you um, out of the whatever for suggesting they only serve, um, they not serve hamburgers or they serve healthy food. Well, through public service announcements, we've certainly changed that attitude. We're now there out there giving us healthy foods. There's a lot of advertisements on TV for healthy, healthy foods. And so the food industry has changed through public pressure. I think the entertainment industry bears great culpability in this whole subject matter, and I think we need to ask them to step up. Um, and take some responsibility for what's going on. All right. Thank you very much for your call. I couldn't agree more. Uh, the only yeah. way to achieve prevention of, of a public health issue to end domestic violence and sexual assault is that every sector has to be involved uh, and do their part. Well, you know, and I'm thinking of the, some of the, the shows that he mentioned, sex is a big part of the comedy. And, and I don't think you're saying that... Uh, maybe you are. I don't know. I'll ask you. Uh, you know, because he, the show he mentioned, Two Broke Girls, there's like a, 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 a joke with a sexual connotation, like every other joke that they have in that one. Is is that the kind of thing that you're railing against? Or uh, is that just, I don't know. Let me just ask you the question. What do you think about those kind of programs? Um, well, I, I think that you... Uh, demonstrate whether or not you endorse them by whether or not you watch them. And I have to say, I don't, I don't watch them. <laughs> um, and, and we ask other people too as well. And frankly, we're also seeing changes in the entertainment industry. So while we have shows like that, this season we also have on American Crime, they're addressing sexual violence in a hazing incident in, in high school against a, a male student. And they're doing a beautiful job and helping open up uh, talking about that. This, this is a serious problem in our country. We had Spotlight just win Best Picture, uh, you know, looking at uh, n- not just exposing sexual abuse, but how to do it in a responsible way that holds a system accountable and and uh, and the community as a whole. We had, um, we've had so many things. We've got Lady Gaga and Kesha and all these people, you know, coming out, you know, using their their celebrity status. Same thing with the No More campaign. So people that are in the entertainment industry recognizing that they do have power and can help make a sea change. So maybe we're at the beginning of it. I I agree with Pat. There are a lot of things on um, on television that um, are are a huge part of the problem. They're, you know, video games, all of that. But we're seeing changes for the better as well. And and Peg. One thing in the entertainment industry, or one area I always have to look at, uh, hip-hop and, you know, how some of the music addresses women in, in hip-hop. I mean, it's, 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 it's horrible. Yeah, and not just in hip-hop, but perhaps it's easier for, um, to hear it there now, but not just in hip-hop. I, I think we also have to be careful not... Um, Healthy sexuality is um, something we all aspire to. 
uh, objectification of a group um, and in our culture often of women is not okay. And that is, again, one of those real fundamental premise that kind of, again, per, um, see a group of people as less than and allow or promote violence to occur. Yeah, so many things that uh, we, we can talk about. And I'm always happy to have uh, the two of you on, as I said earlier, because there are any number of topics to bring up. Uh, the Twitter town hall meeting today, when is it and how do people get involved? It's one to two. The two hashtags, no more week and PA says no more. Uh, if you use those, you can join the conversation. Okay. Peg Derkers, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Domestic Violence, and Kristen Hauser, of Chief Public Affairs Officer, Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape. Thank both of you for being with us today. Thank, Thank you. you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. From the jazz singer to Annie Hall, from Fiddler on the Roof to the Frisco Kid, and from Cecil B. DeMille to Steven Spielberg, Jews have played a prominent role in Hollywood, both on and behind the screen. That's from a press release that uh, kind of sets the tone of a blockbuster movie itself, announcing the appearance, appearance Saturday of noted film critic, historian, and professor of cinema, Dr. Eric Goldman. And uh, Dr. Goldman will be appearing at Hitzak Amuna Congregation on Green Street in Harrisburg Saturday. Dr. Goldman explores the evolving film depictions of what it means to be a Jew in America. Dr. Goldman, welcome to the program. Hi, good morning. Well, let's talk about this. I mean, when I when I first saw, uh, you know, what you were looking to do, I thought, okay, a hundred years, a century of uh, Jewish uh, Americans in film. Uh, this is a unique way to cover the Jewish experience in America. Uh, tell us about how unique and why did you decide to do this? Well, um, I... I studied film, and uh, I learned very early on that if you look at films from different periods, you can uh, truly get a glimpse into uh, how people reacted and how people uh, lived at that particular moment in time. So uh, by exploring specific films, you can delve into uh, a world of the past uh, in a very vibrant and, and moving way. And for a lot of people, Unfortunately, who who don't like to read books or maybe don't read as many books as the, as they should, uh, you know, doing this by through movies or through cinema, uh, maybe a lot more fun to do it that way. Well, it's it's a lot more uh, it's a lot more fun. Clearly, one has to you know also read the text uh, that that go along with it. Absolutely, but yes, it gives you a nice glimpse and and say, wow, you know, I didn't understand that. You know, that's the way things were back then. Well, let's talk about uh, some of the history. Many of the Hollywood studios from the early days on were run by Jewish Americans. How did that come to be? You know, um, we forget that in this country uh, there was prejudice and there was bigotry, and, and uh, we worked to make uh, America a better place. Uh, but early on, at the beginning of the 20th century, many uh, industries were closed to Jews and other minority groups. So um, here was a new uh, business that uh, had no restrictions on it, and it was natural that uh, Jews got involved in it. Also, the movies were playing largely to immigrant audiences. So um, Jews, as, as, as new immigrants to America, understood what people were looking for and very quickly got involved, uh, and it was just a natural fit. You know, many of the names that you'll mention are very recognizable, but 
Who were some of the pioneers in those early days? Uh, you know, names like uh, the Warner Brothers and uh, and Adolf Zucker. Um, um, uh, you know, you can go on and on. Uh, 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 you know, the Metro Goldwyn Mayer. You know, was was Metro was different companies. Uh, Sam Goldwyn uh, and Louis B. Mayer. Uh, all of these people, you know, had a, a clear understanding of what Americans were looking to watch and enjoy as pastime, and uh, just it was a natural fit. And what you do, and you will do uh, on your your appearance here in Harrisburg on Saturday, is talk about how Jews were portrayed in film. But how did that correlate with how Jewish Americans, what Jewish Americans were experiencing in this country? Now, I know that's kind of a broad question. Well, you know, it's it's a funny thing. Before World War II, we uh, we forget that um, there was a Nazi Bund uh, in this country. Um, there there was uh, a lot of anti-Semitism, and and the filmmakers, most of whom were Jewish, were quite concerned about bringing too much attention to themselves. So where one might have expected uh, Jews to be involved in making anti-Hitler movies, uh, they did just the opposite. So it took uh, filmmakers uh, like a Daryl F. Zanuck, who was not Jewish, uh, to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, you guys are too scared to make movies about prejudice. Uh, this, is, this is an American problem. I want to deal with it. So, you know, you look at films, uh, in the case of Zanuck, film like House of Rothschilds, which he made it in 1934, or Gentleman's Agreement, more famously made in 1947. This was a film, these were films that dealt with, you know, first with uh, Nazism and prejudice and, and persecution, and, and the second film with anti-Semitism, social anti-Semitism in this country. So um, these reflect on, on how Jews felt, and Jews were wary. And it really was only in the late 1950s when, you know, when uh, the civil rights movement began uh, that uh, Jews and other minority groups were made to feel much more comfortable in this country. So you're saying, and, you know, it's hard to believe for those maybe who were born after 1960. So you're saying that there was a conscious effort by Jewish filmmakers to not bring attention to themselves. Not only that, but they, you know, when Daryl F. Zanuck announced, uh, he was at the time uh, head of 20th Century Fox. So when he announced in 1946 that he was going to be making this film about anti-Semitism, the Jewish community said, wait a minute, don't do that. That's, that's you know, we don't want to raise these issues. We're afraid, we're so afraid that if you make a film about anti-Semitism, there'll be, there'll be anti-Semitism in this country, greater anti-Semitism. So, yes, Jews uh, were quite concerned and wary. You authored a book uh, that was published in uh, 2013, The American Jewish Story Through Film. And throughout the book, you point to several films in each decade that were significant to Jews. Uh, One in particular in the 1920s was The Jazz Singer. Now, many of us remember the remake uh, in the 1980s with Sir Lawrence Olivier and uh, Neil Diamond starring. But why was The Jazz Singer an important film? Um, it, it was actually uh, important for a variety of reasons. Film historians look at it because it was the first uh, commercial release of a sound film, and it really ushered in uh, the entire uh, sound era, you know, the talkie era. Um, but uh, in terms of uh, what I was trying to show, it's, it's a film about a young boy 
who breaks away from um, the older traditional generation. Why? Because he, he wants to become American. He wants to assimilate into American society. And, and this was not just the story of, of, of you know, second-generation Jewish boys, but it was the story of, of really an entire world of children of, of immigrants who were rejecting their parents' values, rejecting... Uh, the insulation that many of these communities had, and and wanting to break out and be part of a broader American society. So it's 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 a fascinating look at the tensions between generations, the tension between that immigrant generation and that first generation American-born uh, um, uh, grouping uh, of of Jews, Italians, Greeks, whatever they were. And just as you explained, uh, and it, it was a multi-layered film. It wasn't just—I uh, mean, what you described could be made with any ethnic group, but it was one of the first where Jews were involved. Right, and and uh, it was actually an accident, a coincidence. It just so happens that Warner Brothers was a company in in very bad financial shape at the time, and they rolled the dice with a new technology that most. Uh, people were not interested in getting involved, and it was too expensive, it was too cumbersome. And uh, Warner Brothers understood at the time, the four Warner Brothers, that if they didn't roll that dice and, and give it a shot and try making it talky, their company would fold. You know, as I was doing research uh, for today's segment, uh, you know, there are any number of, of websites that uh, have their own rankings as to the most important Jewish films, but some that uh, come up most often, Fiddler on the Roof, Schindler's List, Yenel, uh, the, the Frisco Kid. You even mentioned the Frisco Kid. Many people, when they look at that film, don't think of uh, that being an important Jewish film, but it was if, if, if you saw the film. So what are some of the others? I mean, I imagine you agree with that short list, but what are some of the other most significant Jewish films? Well, um, you know, I chose from my book different films from a variety of decades. I tried to pick one or two films uh, in each decade to give some light uh, onto uh, Jewish life and, and changing American Jewry. Uh, but uh, clearly some of the great films were uh, Avalon, um, The Way We Were, in a very major sense, truly deals with uh, the tensions that uh, American Jews were were facing as they as they were uh, being more and more accepted into American society as the quotas uh, dropped and and as anti-Semitism fell in this country. Um, Barry Levinson's film Liberty Heights is is probably underappreciated. Uh, really, a, a, a terrific film about um, about African Americans uh, and Jews struggling to become more mainstream in America. Um, and, and more recently, some films uh, like uh, Keeping the Faith, which, um, which is really the story of a rabbi, played by Ben Stiller, who has to make a decision about, his, about being true to uh, himself as a Jew uh, and, and the struggle uh, of an American Jew in American society. I'm just looking through uh, the book right now, uh, some of the films you also write about, Gentleman's Agreement and Crossfire, The Young Lions. Uh, you mentioned The Way We Were with Barbara Streisand, but also The Prince of Tides and Avalon and Liberty Heights. Talking about some of the stars that were influential, Barbara Streisand is one that, uh, you know, she's a superstar, but uh, she also is a Jewish superstar. Well, you know, uh, Streisand, to her credit, 
never walked away from her uh, her looks uh, and and her connection with Judaism. So here she was able to achieve uh, stardom in America um, and and not move away from every aspect that pointed to her as being a Jew. Um, she had played parts where she you know is a uh, a funny girl and funny lady where, you know, it's very clear that she is a Jewish character. You know, one of the big fears that actors have in today's world is being stereotyped. You know, that, oh, always plays Italian parts. Or he's always a Greek or, he, you know, it's always Jew or he's always making Jewish movies. I, and I, I think in America today we appreciate uh, when someone is true to themselves. And, and Streisand is uh, to, you know, with all, her, with all due credit to her, she is truly... Uh, totally comfortable as a Jew in America um, uh, who has achieved great success. Someone who wasn't necessarily comfortable, maybe not being comfortable is the, is the wrong way to put it, but he admitted that uh, he wasn't that devout. Steven Spielberg, until he made Schindler's List, Steven Spielberg is one of the most important filmmakers of all time. Uh, it also brings up another point that you, you make in the book about the Holocaust and uh, how that became the theme of so many films. Talk about Spielberg, Holocaust, Schindler's List. Well, Spielberg... Uh had wanted to make Schindler's List for close to a decade. You know, he had uh, optioned and bought the rights to, to the story, to the novel. And um, I think he actually has always been true to himself as a Jew. He was, you know, a successful filmmaker. And um, he had seen that this was a, a period in, in, in world history that uh, really needed greater clarification. And uh, he's set out to make Schindler's List. Now, everyone knew that the film would not make a lot of money. I mean, here's a, here's a superstar whose films were netting millions and millions of dollars. You know, Jurassic Park, E.T., and we can go on and on and on. Uh, a brilliant uh, uh, director. And he said, wait a minute, you know, I, I want to make this film. And, and, they, and the producers around him said, you know, are you crazy? You're going to lose money on this thing. And the film actually did not net a lot of money uh, initially. I think it was only $84 million. Now, that sounds like a lot of money to us. But for a Spielberg production, that was, that, was, that was a losing proposition. But he went forward. He made it. He felt it was important. And uh, I think everyone understood how important it was and finally gave him the Oscar that I think he, he uh, certainly deserved. Our guest has been Dr. Eric Goldman. He's an adjunct professor of cinema at Yeshiva University and film reviewer for New Jersey's The Jewish Standard. He also authored the 2013 book, The American Jewish Story Through Cinema. Dr. Goldman will be appearing at Hitzak Yamuna Congregation in Harrisburg this Saturday to explore the evolving film depictions of what it means to be a Jew in America. Dr. Goldman, very interesting, fascinating. Thank you very much. What a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, we're going to be talking about lead, not only in water, but also lead exposure throughout Pennsylvania. That's coming up on tomorrow's Smart Talk.